Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. You can find that on page 786 in the Bibles provided for you. We're studying through these minor prophets, these small books at the end of the Old Testament. This one written about 600 years before the coming of Christ. And Habakkuk, as Sarah has mentioned, is, is complaining to God because while God said, I hear your prayer, Habakkuk, for justice in the earth, uh, he's not satisfied with God's answer because God says, I am going to deal with all sin throughout the earth, even the sin of Israel, by disciplining them for 70 years. I'll ultimately conquer that sin and make them the nation through which the Messiah would come. But, but uh, I'm not going to grade on a scale. All sin is sin. And because I love you, I love you too much to let that sin go. Now, if you remember last week, I used David McCulloch Jr.'s uh, title of his commencement speech at Wellesley Preparatory School, David McCulloch Jr.'s speech, You Are Not Special. And he put in, in the title of his book, uh, he put not in parentheses. And he goes on to explain that every human being is special. He's not necessarily, he doesn't have a Christian uh, approach to the subject, but he at least has that much common grace to recognize that every human being is special as an image bearer of God. Uh, but he was addressing people who tend to think that they are they are so special that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them and that uh, there's nothing that needs to be corrected, nothing that needs to be enhanced, nothing that needs to be cured. And we said, of course, we're special as image bearers of God, but we're profoundly broken people. We're not what we are supposed to be. We've fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. So maybe better than saying you are not special, we could use C.S. Lewis's phrase, you are a glorious ruin. You're a glorious ruin. You're glorious in the image of God, but there is ruin there that needs to be healed. Now, to prove to you that not everything in this church is perfectly planned and synchronized, apparently the Sunday school lesson for all of the primary grades last week was, you are special. <clears throat> The morning sermon was, you are not special. The, all the children learned, you are special. And so my phone was blowing up with all of the beautiful images your children made in Sunday school class with, you are special. A special face, a special landscape, beautiful images of all of our special children. So while you felt not special in the morning, at least your children felt special. And so I come back this week. I, I told you I would to say you are special, but only by God's grace. And then I trust by the end of this, you'll understand, especially coming to the Lord's Supper, the special love God has for you enough that he gave his only begotten son. Our passage is verses four, or verses 12 through 20 of Habakkuk chapter two, as we continue on with these woes we said there are five woes in this passage. Last week, we looked at the first two woes, which are both having to do with greed, where God says, you are greedy. He says to the whole world that whoever is greedy will be brought to 
humility. Here he goes on with three more woes, declarations of warning. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, To a silent stone arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Brothers and sisters, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord whether they're droopy from sleep, whether they're shut by unbelief, whether they are closed and obscured by hurt, pain, we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes and our hearts that we might see and hear and receive the healing power of the love of God In Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray, God's people said together, amen. You know, what makes you angry can give insight into what you really love. For instance, not long ago, I was sitting in my truck having a conversation, having to do, trying to give pastoral comfort to someone, and someone ran into the side of my truck. And I went from pastor to, let's just say I was upset. And uh, it exposed an aberrant love. I love my truck, but too much. More seriously, a friend of mine was telling me recently she was in a Bible study. And she was pouring out her heart to her friends and She was especially relating how she had been really treated very wrongly, very ungratefully lately. And she said, I felt so loved because my sisters became so angry. They were even red-faced as they listened to what I was going through. I felt so loved. What did she mean by that? Those friends expressing such empathy, they loved her so much 
to, to find out that someone had mistreated her so badly, made them angry. It revealed their deep love for their sister. When we encounter the anger of God in Scripture, if, if Christ is your Savior, you, you especially must not see that as something that is, that is repulsive, but something that is endearing. That's how much God loves you. Even if you're not a Christian, when you see the things that makes God angry, you would understand that what makes him angry are those things that offend against those who are preciously made in his image, even if you are the one abusing it in yourself. God's love is revealed in his anger. His anger is stirred by those sins that offend against the flourishing, the goodness, the beauty of those made in his image. That's the character of these three woes. The first woe found in verses 12 to 14. And we said woe means God's, this is an expression of God's invective, his anger against a sin that is occurring and that, that must stop, not just because it offends, not because it offends his sensibilities, but because it is wounding those made in his image. The first woe is against violence or injustice, which are the same, we'll explain later. 15 to 17 is against sexual abuse. And verses 18 to 20 is a woe against idolatry. We'll find here how, how uh, applicable, how contemporary, how up-to-date, relevant God's word is in these three matters. And the conclusion should be how much God, how furiously God loves. The first woe is, is uh, that, uh, that God opposes violence. I say in your outline, cheer up. Remember last week I said, cheer up. You're much worse than you ever thought you were. And you're, cheer up. You're more loved in Christ than you can ever imagine. And it's a great relief to get over yourself. And so cheer up, you're not the ruler of the world, God is. And because God is the ruler of the world, he will insist on bringing justice. That he will insist on bringing glory until it covers the whole earth. That's the promise of verse 14. Regardless of how badly things seem to be going now, you have this promise from him in verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. By the end of time, God will make it clear that he is alone, the gloriously sovereign and just one. That's an important message to hear in this day because that it is not the common worldview that God is in charge, that God is the one who defines what is right and true. Charles Taylor, the popular contemporary philosopher, describes a worldview that characterizes the majority of the culture as the social imaginary. What is the social imaginary? What is, what is society 
imagining to be reality. And right now, the social imaginary is what the, the, what the majority of society is imagining to be real is whatever I determine it is individually. So whatever I individually determine is real and right and true, that is what is real and right and true, which works for a while, it seems, until someone else's imagination of reality conflicts with yours. And says yours shouldn't exist or vice versa. And when that kind of social imaginary, the imagination that what is real is what I want it it to be, what is best for me. When that is allowed to run rampant, no one is safe. The result is violence, injustice. The vulnerable are the most at risk. And so God says in verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. He's not just talking to governors and rulers and presidents, but anyone who builds a life, builds a worldview on blood and iniquity. Warns against anyone who builds a life a worldview on anything except that which is revealed in God's word. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? God will make all of it empty and someday he will expose the vacuousness and the the violence and the injustice of that kind of social imaginary. He will expose it to the entire world. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Now, some of you raise your fists, raising your, you should be raising your, your fist in triumph to say, yes, God is against violence, but It is important to look through scripture and understand that violence and injustice go together and just what kinds of things he labels as violent injustice. Some of it is very easy to understand. Murder for one. Genesis 9, 6. He who sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. The ordination of of capital punishment is because he says that one bears the image of God because he is an image bearer of God. Then one who takes another's life unjustly is one who should die at the hand of the state because God is protective of his image, because God is protective of humanity that he might have a large number from which he might redeem. So violence In injustice, we know that very clearly. Murder is something that God hates. But he also calls this violence. Cities that tolerate violence. Numbers 35, 31. Cities that tolerate violence, which inevitably is is hardest on those who are most vulnerable. Not able to protect themselves, to hide behind gates and fences or defend themselves with arms, those who are at risk. God says those cities that tolerate such, woe to them. 
And then he specifies even more in a more, more shocking way. Deuteronomy 25 verse 16. Anything, anything that prevents a human being from flourishing. Anything that prevents a human being from flourishing. He calls violence. Violence of not being able to read. Violence of not being able to break out of cyclical poverty. All of that, whether continued actively or passively, God calls violence. It makes him angry. But God assures us that this will not go on forever. He's sovereign over history. And that someday the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The glory, the beauty of the Lord. Or as Paul says, all of history is being aimed at the praise of his glorious grace. May not be in your timing. You may wonder, why is God allowing this to happen? Why does he not do something sooner? Whatever the reason for his withholding judgment now, it is either for the exacerbation of judgment or giving people time to repent. But what is never true is that God doesn't care. Christianity never, never minimizes evil. The Lord God never turns his face away from what is unjust. The Lord God always notices what happens to his image bearers. We know the passion of that anger in that God became one of us. He caused his son to be incarnated as a human being and came into our world and suffered every category of violence that has ever been done or would be done against a human being. He knows the pain of it and he suffered that in order to reverse it. Not only did he suffer that violence that we have done, suffer on behalf of our sins, but he suffered for all the sins that have been done to us as well, that he might destroy them from the inside out. Cheer up. You are not the ruler of the world, but your good, glorious, and sovereign God revealed in Jesus Christ is. Second thing I want to speak ever so tenderly with you from verses 15 to 17, and it's here in the text, is that cheer up, you are not consigned to be a victim forever. I want you to understand what I mean by that from the very beginning. I don't mean by any stretch that that if you have been the victim of sexual violence that you are not a victim. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that that does not have to become your permanent identity. God cares and God heals. Just look how contemporary verse 15 is. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The use of drugs or alcohol in order to abuse someone else is not a new phenomenon. It's at least 2,500 years old. 
And God says here, I take note of that. And that makes me angry. To violate someone made in my image. And, and uh, sadly, according to latest statistics, it's, yes, 50% of women have been abused in such a way. And three out of 10 men have as well. To while you may not think that it is applicable to you today, and thank God if it is not applicable to you personally, it is most likely applicable to many sisters and brothers in this congregation around you, those who have been abused in this very fundamental and deep and profound way. I want you to know that God sees you and he sees your pain and it angers him. And he's given you not only the gospel, but he's given you a community of grace. And while it's very difficult to to speak of it to someone else, I urge you, I beg you, if you've never found help or, or, or been able to unburden yourself to someone in the pain that you or a child or, or a loved one has experienced, you can trust your pastors. You can trust uh, Mary Wilson. You can trust Lauren Maddox or Jess Suke, or Ali Ike, or, or Destiny Samuels, or those many whom God has assembled here to pastor and shepherd those who are bruised reeds. And it's important for you to hear that, uh, that, that, uh, that you, uh, the devil is, 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 uh, is good at making you feel like you are the guilty one or that you somehow are wrong or you somehow have done something wrong or something is defective with you. It's important for you to understand that you are not wrong. You have been wronged. You have not done something, but something tragically evil has been done to you. And God of all knows that. God did not invent shame. The devil invented shame. And that which you feel, that shame that keeps you in hiding, that shame that wants you to withdraw, that shame that wants you to blame yourself or to, to do the woulda, shoulda, coulda, sir. You, you, that shame is not from God. It's from the evil one. And God gives you the gospel. A Jesus who hung on the cross and was himself sexually humiliated and shamed by hanging nakedly there. He understands, he empathizes, and he's able individually to lift your burden and he gives you a community by which you may put to to death the lies of the evil one. And by these means of grace, you're able to send shame to hell. You must see in this passage that you are seen and cared for. And here is a warning as well to those would-be violators. And those would-be violators are not just those who force themselves on someone else. But my friends, consensual sex is always proto-abuse. There's no such thing as consensual sex in the Bible. It's only fornication or adultery. 
The Bible speaks ever so strongly to it. Paul uses shocking language when he says to the Christian who engages in sex outside of a marriage bond, you may as well drag Jesus into the bed with you. To those who commit, who have sex outside the marriage bond, he says, you may as well, because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, you may as well do it right on the altar because you are the altar of God. Why does God speak so strongly? Because he wants to ruin everybody's fun? No, because he knows that sin in this way affects you more profoundly in your identity as an image bearer of God than any other sin. He wants life to go well with you. Do you know that this is one of the explanations for why the church grew so rapidly in the first three centuries? It was, it was the, there are many, several reasons. One, the revelation of a God who loves us so much that he gave his son. And another for the moral ethic that Christianity proposed, which was for one, a standard for everybody, regardless of class and regardless of gender. But this in particular, that the sexual relationship was to be reserved for marriage. In other words, Women and children who were told from their earliest days that they existed to satisfy a man's lust suddenly hear from this caring father, no, you are my daughter, you are my child, and no one lays a hand on you unless they are first willing to pledge themselves to you until death. So the early Christian woman is able to say to a man who says, I want to have my way with you, you would say, you're not. Even if you kill me, I have that choice. And you're not because, and maybe young women, even men, maybe you need to say, you know, uh, I'm not going to do that because my father is a very jealous guy. He loves me so much, he doesn't allow anybody to touch me. And do you know he's been known to kill people for doing that to his daughters? And he has cosmic, um, he, 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 has, uh, he has cosmic immunity. He can never be convicted, never be punished for killing someone. So it's best that you not do that unless you're willing to die for me and to promise that before witnesses. Do you realize what that did in the early church? Women, children, poor, slaves said, that is the God I want because that is a God who loves me, who dignifies me, a father, an elder brother who is protective. I just uh, heard again, listened again to Rachel Den Hollander's victim impact speech. She's the lawyer who was a, a gymnast in her early teens who was abused by Larry Nasser. And in her victim impact speech, and now a speech that she makes all over the country, most recently made it to my, my daughter's uh, college ministry in, in Knoxville. She's one who recounts that she spoke to Larry Nasser and told him, 
that the Bible he was clutching in his hand for some reason is one that tells him that God does not let such deeds go unpunished. And that she prayed that he would be so convicted and so frightened by the threat of God's justice that someday he would bow his knee and receive God's forgiveness. She makes a distinction between forgiveness and justice. She says, it is one thing for me to forgive. That is that I release myself from the burden of having to gain revenge on you. But in releasing myself of that, I hand you over to God who will judge all evil. And he'll either judge it directly on you if you don't repent or he will judge it in Jesus Christ should you accept that forgiveness. What a God of love. A God who not only protects us and is angry, but he is one who now has the authority and has earned the right to defend us because he has suffered hell on our place. He has established his justice forever and is able to surround us by his protective mercy as well as to give mercy to us. Even if we have been guilty of sinning against him in these profound ways. Third thing I want you to see in this passage before we go to the table. Verses 18 to 19. Such a relief to know that you're not God. You should be very relieved that I'm not God and I'm very relieved that you're not either. God is God. And everything that we trust in, in addition to or in place of him is an idol You say, well, I would never worship an idol. I would never bow down to a a God of wood or stone. But here, just just as we may infer from what makes us angry what we love, so you may infer from what makes you anxious what you worship. I just heard a powerful message in Indianapolis at the Gospel Coalition conference by a brother from Kenya. And he was holding the mirror up to our hearts and he's, he was showing us that when our eyes are focused on, on things of this world, as he was preaching from Exodus when the people of, of Israel were focused on the approaching armies of, of Pharaoh and they were afraid rather than looking up to see the God who was looking down at those Egyptians who were coming at them. He said, when you're looking just at your foes, when you're looking just at the things of this earth and you're afraid, it reveals what you really worship. And so he teased us a bit by saying, here is the way we tend to read the papers. Did you read what the Supreme Court did today? Oh, brethren, let us gather together and shudder. Let us shudder together in fear. When we lift our eyes to the true God who looks down at the nations and laughs, we don't shudder, grow anxious. What do you do in the meantime? I don't know how it's going to work out, you say. If God would just tell me what he's going to do and how it'll all work out, that would help me. Well, he told Habakkuk, how it was going to work out, it didn't help him. 
He was angry. So Habakkuk finally realized, you know, God sees this world more accurately than I do. So while I can't understand it, I understand that God is good. So I'm going to go, verse 20, into his holy temple. I'm going to take my seat. I'm going to put this at the feet of God. And I'm going to say, this is all the injustice I see. This is what is being done to me. This is the violence that is happening in my, in my, in my, in my culture. This is the way I have been abused, the way I've been mistreated. Lord, I don't understand it. I can't make sense of it. You are good. You are God. You're the sovereign ruler. So here, I'm going to put it at your feet. And I'm going to let it go. Now, what do we tend to do? We tend to get up off of our knees and we say, let me have it a little bit longer. And we put it back. We say, thank you, Lord. Now, let me work on it a little bit longer. I think I, I, I think I figured it out. Or I, I, I've forgotten to ask you about something. I think if I ask this, this is what, your God is good. He's proven that in Jesus. The God who is able to work salvation through the darkness of the death of his son on the cross is the one who is able, as Sarah reminded us, to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he's not left you alone in that faith, but he's giving you these brothers and sisters in the church. Take it to him and leave it there. God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent from informing him on what to do. The famous H.A. Hodges, the philosopher who in the early part of his career, tried to disprove God. One day was walking down the street and he saw a, an image in the, a shop window, of a painting that he recognized from his Sunday school days. It was Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. That one image unwound him. And he went to his knees and he said, if you are the God who washes my feet, you're the God I want. What is the Lord's table? The Lord's table is the image of Jesus washing our feet. Remember, it's not, it was not just washing our feet. Peter says, oh, don't, you shouldn't wash my feet. I, I, I should wash your feet. He said, unless I wash your feet, you will have no part with me. And then, Jesus, and then Peter said, well, give me a whole bath. And he still didn't get it. Jesus was saying, by washing your feet, I'm saying, I'm the sovereign God who bows before you, becomes your servant and takes all of your burdens, all of your pains, everything done against you, everything done by you. I take it on myself. I lift it, I tone for it so that you and I may have fellowship forever. That's what Jesus is saying in this table. Brothers and sisters, if that is your belief, 
Then rise with me. And from your bulletin on page six, let us confess our faith together in this true gospel. <laughs> 